You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Looks like a burial. In the road. Driver, what is it? It's a funeral, Mendel. They're afraid of the men who steal dead bodies. So they dig the grave in the middle of the road. Where people pass all of the time. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. That introduction was from the film White Zombie. Since George Romero's film Night of the Living Dead, the pop culture interpretation of the word zombie has come to mean a mindless, flesh-eating corpse which is reanimated for the purpose of eating the living. But before Night of the Living Dead, the word zombie meant something different. It referred to a person who had died, was buried, and then resurrected into a kind of half-life where it had no will of its own. Instead, it would be controlled by the person who did the reanimation. There are a lot of questions about whether there were ever any real zombies. The most famous modern case is that of Clairvius Narcisse, ethnobotanist Wade Davis believed that there was some truth to the stories of zombies and that there may have been toxicological tools which could create such a creature but that the idea of zombies was also a powerful cultural tool of enslavement and political and social control. Of course, there are mundane ways to explain the story of Narcisse, but whether or not he was really an enslaved zombie, there have always been people who wanted to control the behavior of others. Consider all the ways that drugs and medicine seek to control our behavior. Get better concentration. Get better sleep. Stop craving sweets. Be a better lover. Make her desire you. Make him cuddle. Stay focused reduce your inhibitions, kick depression to the curb. 
But the reality is that we don't always control our behavior the way we think we do. And sometimes things we encounter in life actually end up controlling us. This is Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and today Karen Stolzno and I talk with an entomologist and parasite researcher about behavior controlled by parasites. It's time for some Monster Talk. Today we're talking with David Hughes. He is an assistant professor of entomology at Penn State University. His specialty is parasite manipulation of host behaviors. So the reason I contacted you... Uh, although not directly, was because of your recent or fairly recent article about parasitic behavioral modification. Uh, your article uh, was talking about ants and funguses, and it got a lot of press because of its use of a zombie metaphor. And I want to talk about that because that's uh, the whole zombie uh, idea is very popular, uh, well, culturally across the board, I think, but it's also with our listeners. But before we jump into how parasites modify ant behavior, can you give our listeners kind of an ant 101? Because uh, I think a lot of people really don't know much about these fascinating little insects. Right. Um, so ants are like humans, uh, social creatures. And one of the most interesting things about them is that all the individuals that are out doing the work, stealing the picnic lunch that you so nicely prepared, they're all females. The whole society is built upon female activity. So the individuals who fight the wars, which defend the nests, which gather the food, they're all females. And this works because of a quirk of genetics where it turns out, in terms of an evolutionary advantage, it's better for ant females to raise sisters than it is to go off and have their own offspring. The consequence of this is that you can have very large numbers of individuals working together, hundreds of thousands and sometimes millions of individuals all cooperating in a nest. Ant societies are worldwide, of course, and incredibly important in ecological systems. So most of the insects you'll find in the rainforest are ants because of that massive numbers in a single nest. So, there, so actually, there's there's more ants than uncles. <laughs> That's that would be one way of looking at it. The, the, <laughs> that doesn't work with my accent. <laughs> no. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so ants are uh, ridiculously important in ecolo all ecological systems because they're the, the top predators and the top herbivores, even though they're small and individually minuscule. When you have a colony comprising of hundreds of thousands of individuals, they pack a, quite a punch. And so if you were to put all of the organisms in a rainforest on a scale, the ants on one side and everything else on the other side, the ants would outweigh everything else in a rainforest. And that includes the big characteristic megafauna like jaguars. So how does uh, chemical control affect ant behavior? Well, ants live in a, in a chemical world. When they're out and about, they do use eyesight, but they predominantly live inside these nests with many, many other individuals. And these are dark environments. And so they've evolved a way to communicate chemically so they are able to recognize individuals. Each individual has a characteristic smell on its skin. And when they move out to find food, they often lay down these trail pheromones, which is essentially a corridor of chemicals in which they move. And they, as they deviate away from this corridor, they move back towards it. And this is why you can see this very characteristic and very precise trail behavior that they have. So that is, in a sense, it's their system of communication? Yes. So they communicate chemically. So they're, they, they're able to assess which other individuals they meet, they're, the individual smell that those other ants have. They're able to find a food source chemically and then lay a chemical trail, essentially 
painting a map for other ants to follow. Um, and this is a very effective way for them to monopolize the food. So individual foragers are running around, they find a food source, they quickly run back to the nest, laying a trail. The other ants pick up on the queue, go out, and very soon you have uh, your sandwich completely covered by ants. <laughs> Do, do chemicals control their jobs within the colony, or do they um, are do, are ants born to a task that they always do, or how does that work? So the principal individual in the nest is the queen, and and she chemically controls a lot of the behavior that goes inside the nest. She every time she lays an egg, she has a chemical signature on that egg, and that says a number of things. It says that she's still laying eggs, and she's a fecund, healthy individual. And where she not putting that chemical on the eggs or where she's not laying eggs as quickly as she should do, the workers would simply kill her. Um, so it's a quite a, a dramatic society. So that's one way of chemically communicating. When they're growing up, when they're as the younger stages, the larvae, they have a lot of chemical inputs at that stage. And that sets up the trajectories. We know that some workers are bigger than others. Some are morphologically adapted to particular tasks. Some are quite formidable and large soldiers. And so all of this follows from chemical pathways, which set up chain reactions in gene expression. So it's everything in the nest is chemically mediated, including death. So in the case of death, what happens is an individual ant dies. And really, how would you know? It's dead, and they're not exactly the most cognitively advanced species on the planet. So in order to determine that one individual is dead, what happens is it just changes its smell as happens to every other organism when it's dead. And so slight changes in a chemical oleic acid over hours after the individual's dead signals to other colony members that that individual's dead. And so they change their behavior towards it. They pick it up and they carry it off and throw it on the trash pile. Seems like there are some similarities between ants and bees, in a sense. A lot, a lot. They're both in the same group, uh, the large group Hymenoptera. So they're the, both the same type of insect, but more importantly, they're both in the in the social insect group. And so they have the societies arranged in a similar fashion, with an, uh, one individual, the queen, reproducing. Um, there is also a king, but in the case of the Hymenopterans, these wasps and ants and bees. The king is dead. He's just preserved alive as, as a large sack of sperm inside the body of the queen. And this is preserved for as much as 20 years, which is a quite an impressive feat. In the case of the termites, which is another group of social insects, the king is alive. And they mate, the king and the queen mate repeatedly over many, many years. But the, the, the ants, wasps and bees have figured out how to just take the most essential feature of the male and keep it. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking I'd rather be a termite. Will uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so? How do ants? So these are colony insects. How do, how do ants behave when they're separated from their colony? They, they, they really don't have an existence as a solitary organism, except for those new queens which have to go out and find a new nest. Uh, so periodically they send out reproductives. So those guys do have a solitary life. But for the workers, the, the vast majority of individuals in the nest, those guys are truly social and separating them from the nest set, takes their entire identity away. They don't do anything of note. They just pretty much sit still. Um, there are they, they might far, move around, they'll, they'll feed themselves occasionally, but they'll, they'll, they'll pretty much wither away without the colony. Correspondingly, if you have an individual which is sick or stressed or is is uh, is breaking down because of some something going on inside its body, 
putting it in the colony tends to prolong its life. So they receive um, essentially pharmaceuticals from other ants in the nest. So if they're infected, if they're sick, other individuals in the nest will actually give them a source of medicine and that will prolong their life. Wow. So, be, so sorry, being divorced from the nest leads to a quick death. Being part of the nest leads to a longer life. And uh, can an ant join a different colony or will it always be an outcast in any other colony? So ants being cooperative, they sacrifice their reproduction in order to help raise their sisters in future generations. And this is quite an unusual way of reproducing. Most organisms just have their own babies and that's how they achieve Darwinian fitness, which is what everything is trying to uh, maximize. So in the case of the ants, if they move towards another nest, they're individuals altruistically. If that system is to work, you have to know who your family is. And so every ant is uh, stamped with a, a chemical label which identifies which colony is part of your family. So, so for the system to work, you have to know who family is and, and who it isn't. It's essentially like these um, tattoos of the, the Japanese mafia or some, <laughs> other, some other gang symbol. It, it, it works very effectively. <laughs> Wow. Have people done, I mean, this is totally off the topic, I guess, but have people done uh, any experiments trying to chemically mask or, or do we have the ability to like trick a colony into accepting a stranger? Yeah. So, so we can do that. Um, people have done it uh, a lot. You can trick them by cooling them down and then putting them together. And so they'll accept it. A really clever experiment um, done by, the name will come to me, um, done previously was looking at glass balls. So you take these glass balls and you cover them with a chemical which imitates what the workers will have. And so they put these little glass balls outside the nest and as the workers came out, they said, oh, there's already workers out here. We don't have to work. And they went back home. So just the very smell of something, even though it's on something foreign like a glass ball, um, will will lead to changes in behavior. So we can't trick them a lot. And that, that experiment was done by Deborah Gordon. We wanted to start talking about the parasitic fungus. It, it, although, is a, is a fungus a parasite or is a fungus just a fungus and it happens to be inside the body? So, so anything, that, anything that derives its nutrient from exploiting another organism uh, leading to some significant cost for that other organism is a parasite. Anything which is beneficial to another organism is a mutualist. So these fungi which are infecting and controlling ant behavior, these are certainly parasitic. And they're even a certain type of parasite which can only reproduce by killing the host. It's um, Host death is a de developmental necessity. So it has to kill the host in order to reproduce. So, so this is called, and I'm going to I'm probably screw this up, I'm going to try it. Ophiocordyceps unilateralis? Yes, Ophiocordyceps unilateralis. You, you said it well correctly. <laughs> and Ophio means snake. So the, the, hmm. the spores are shaped a little bit like snakes and unilateralis means it's just on one side. So every time we have the name, it, it sends a signal something about the organism. Neat. So, so tell us, how, how is this discovered and what does it do? Hmm. This is a, a fungus which controls ant behavior. So in tropical forests, and we're discovering now even in temperate woods around the world, you can look on the, on the leaves and you can find ants attached to the leaf. And those ants are dead and a large fungus is sticking out of the back of the head. And you can see this on a number of images around the web. And so this was first collected 
we, we, we discovered by Alfred Russell Wallace, the co-discoverer of natural selection, uh, when he was in Sulawesi in 1859. So it has a storied history of some sorts, and it hasn't been studied at all except through by a colleague of mine, Harry Evans, back in the 70s and early 80s. It's some really nice taxonomic work. But it, we, nobody really went into the behavior, tried to figure out what was happening there. And we've been studying this for about six years now in different places. And what we discovered is that it is one of the most complex manipulations of animal behavior that we know about. It's a, it, when the ants are out foraging for food, they get infected by fungal spores on the forest floor. They go back into their nest. They stay there for a few days. The fungus grows into the body and replicates inside the body of the insect. And then at the moment that the fungus needs to reproduce and continue its life cycle, what it does is it causes the ant to essentially move from being a social organism to being a solitary organism. It moves out of the nest. It leaves the environment of the nest. It goes outside and then it finds a particular place to die. And this is highly specific. It's on the underside of a leaf, on the veins of a leaf, on a leaf of a particular orientation in space, and a particular height off the ground. So highly specific. And all of this happens around about solar noon. And so the ant is on that leaf and it deeply embeds its mandibles into the leaf tissue. Ant mandibles are extremely strong and they have a lot of metal inside them. So you can think of them a little bit like wolverines, uh, fighting weapons. They're really uh, hard and they deeply embed themselves into this tissue. And that's important because the ant is hanging upside down and the fungus is going to kill it after a few hours. And we're enough for this wolverine mandible uh, uh, penetration of the leaf, gravity would bring the dead ant to the forest floor. So the fungus is in some way controlling the mandibles of the ant to bite into the, vein, the veins of the leaf, having the ant hanging there. And then over the next couple of months, the fungus will slowly use the ant's dead body as a resource to produce spores to continue the cycle. And this is why they're called zombie ants. The zombie ants, yes, absolutely, and, and this was this was a nice um, a nice moniker given by a journalist way back when. Uh, I don't know who first started it, um, but I think it's a perfect descriptor because we're so familiar with ants, thinking of them as this great collective, individuals sacrificing their reproduction, helping to make more copies of themselves, helping the queen, everybody doing a defined task. These individuals don't do that. These ones are fungi in ants' clothing. They're being driven around the forest by a fungus inside the body. Essentially, uh, in, in evolutionary terms, the ant is now dead once it's infected. And so in the, in the concept of zombie bi biology, we can think of this really as a zombie individual which is being moved around by something else controlling it. How, how do the fungi actually modify the ant's behavior? Are they like – so maybe it would be a little helpful if I knew how – ants got their behavioral controls like are they do, do we know that much about it so ants like all animals their behavior is a result of a complex interplay between the genome and the gene expression and the physiology in the body so that's metabolites and proteins and other small compounds neurons and muscles acting together and finally resulting in that complex behavior that we'll see that could be a, a pack of wolves hunting or a solid the, the, the vertical fight of a hummingbird so this is complex behavior that we can see and it's always controlled by lots and lots of different elements intertwining 
In the case of a parasite, which is inside the body of a host, what that does is it takes the machinery that the host already has in place, the neurons, the physiology, and the nerves, and it manipulates them by causing a repeated pattern of behavior. In the case of the ants, these fungi cause them to repeatedly fall and convulse, and it maintains them in the understory vegetation. So the ants are trying to get back up into the canopy, and the fungus causes them to fall and fall and fall. And that keeps them in the understory where we know that the fungus can grow better. As for how it can cause the biting behavior into the leaf, we have discovered that the ants mandible muscles, which make about 60% of its head, are completely destroyed, uh, atrophied, in the same way you would see in the spinal cord injury or carpal tunnel syndrome from too much typing. The fungus is doing something to break down this muscle, and that causes a locked jaw or, or essentially rigor mortis in a living ant. If the muscles contract, but they can't uh, loosen, and that's important because that contraction keeps the ant in the place where the fungus needs it to be. So what actually uh, kills the ant as such? So these fungi and, and all fungi which infect insects are extremely good at killing the insects. They produce a range of different compounds. Uh, they can be small compounds, which we call metabolites. They can be larger ones, proteins that we're more familiar with. So they, they produce this and, and, and just essentially overwhelming the ant's interior environment with toxins and that kills it. So killing the insect is not a difficult thing. Getting it to the location where you want it to die is the tricky thing. And in order to do that, the fungus undoubtedly messes with the nervous system of the ant. It's interesting that this group of fungi that we study is the same larger group um, with, to which belongs ergot, which is the source of LSD uh, discovered back in the 1930s. It's a fungus which in that case infects plants. And so we know that that has a strong effect on mammalian muscles. It has been used in, in, a, in a gynecology for about a thousand years in order to bring on uterine contractions. So it's very useful. So LSD, and there's another one, um, ketamine, which is a horse tranquilizer, comes from the same group of fungi. So undoubtedly, although we haven't discovered this yet, we're trying to, undoubtedly these ants are controlled by some really interesting uh, drugs. And that, um, sorry to interrupt, uh, Blake, but wasn't that blamed for some of the witch crazes, I think? It was. I was particular? thinking the same thing. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if, it's certainly been speculated. I don't know if there's yes, enough yeah. evidence. There's, I think I think you can get pretty uh, pretty elaborate witch craze behavior without the introduction of LSD. But <laughs> <laughs> no, that was I, one of the theories was on bread. Well, I think no, it, it's a very well um, argued point by a by a historian back in the nineteen seventies, and um, she argued this uh, uh, that the Salem witch trials were caused by people eating infected rye, right. and we have more recent evidence back from the mid fifties, nineteen fifties in France, where a whole town went berserk because they ate infected rye. This was a, a producer of bread had sold this knowing that it was infected by this fungus. Therefore, it would have these ergot alkaloids inside it. And there were cases of 12-year-olds trying to kill their parents with big, big kitchen knives. So there's not just that example. It goes right back down through European history showing many, many examples of... Uh, mass hallucinations when people in, in, uh, ingest this infected uh, uh, rye bread and, and uh, that's because of the alkaloid which is there. So the idea that the Salem witch trials were caused by this LSD organism coming from a parasite 
is undoubtedly a, a viable uh, suggestion. Mm. Can you speculate about how this fungus managed to get the control of the ant down so specifically? Well, we're, we're trying to. It, it's really hard. So one of the major challenges to what people often throw up in the face of Darwinism is, oh, you've got something complicated like the vertebrate eye. How can you explain it? And ever since Darwin, we've explained it very easily. You mm -hmm. have intermediate steps and each one of those has to have a benefit to the organism. And so even though the eye is marvelously complicated, it, it doesn't require a designer. We could see how natural selection could produce something like this. It's more difficult though with the parasite systems. We have something really complicated of an ant going to a leaf on the underside, the underside of a leaf in a forest, particular time of day, particular part of the leaf. But what are the intermediate steps leading to that? Um, we don't have real good records of these things. We don't have lots of intermediates. And so, of course, that doesn't invalidate anything about Darwinism. It just means that we have to try extra hard to find these steps all along the way. What we're now doing is working right across the, the world. We, we have data from 16 countries and we work ourselves in rainforests from northern Australia to the Amazon and we collect lots and lots of different examples of fungi controlling ant behaviors and there's a lot of different ways that the fungi can do what they should do and that's really helping us to build this evolutionary pathway to this complex manipulation. Does it matter what species of plant that the ant bites into, does it use the same species or is it more about the orientation, the height, the direction, that sort of thing? No, the plant species doesn't matter. If you keep them in the lab, they'll even bite into pieces of plastic. Once they're, once they're in the, uh, the, the, the final um, minutes of manipulation, they'll bite anything. I was wondering why the fungus chooses ants specifically to be the host. Well, these fungi belong to a larger group of what are called entomopathogenic fungi, and they infect lots and lots of different insects, and they even infect spiders, and some infect um, other fungi. So we do see other organisms being manipulated. There are the wasps and the bees, um, but other other crickets and, and different types of insects. The behavior is not a, not changed as much as we see in the ants, and that's probably because ants live in essentially cities in the in the forest. And when you're manipulating it, you can't cause the ant to die in the nest; it has to die a little bit outside it. And so, what's required in that case is that the fungus controls the ant to die near the nest and near the highways which are coming out from this nest because uh, were to just kill the ant in any old random place, it wouldn't do so well. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there's many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and or useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world. 
but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur injuries, <laughs> paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And are there any other parasites that modify hosts' behaviors? Lots and lots. So if we just stay with the ants for a moment, there are worms which cause ants to jump into water so they can they can then swim out of their body and go off and reproduce. Uh, nematode worms which cause ants to look like attractive fruit for birds to pick off and then because they want to be inside the bird's stomach, there are... Uh, smaller organisms which are called trematodes which migrate to the brain because in that case the, they want to cause the ant to bite into grass which cows eat and the cycle continues moving out of the ants there are lots and lots of organisms which cause insects to change their color change their behavior change their habitat uh, we have mammals also being infected the classical example is this toxoplasma gondii which is a small organism which we call a protozoan very similar to uh, the, the causative agent for malaria. So what that does is it gets into the brains of rats, causing them to change their behavior and lose their natural fear of cats. And so in very well-designed studies by uh, Joanne Webster and others, they were able to show that the, cat, the rats would go towards the cat and thereby get eaten by the cat, which is exactly what the parasite wants to do. Many parasites live in two hosts sequentially and they have to go from one to the other. And since they're small microbial parasites with no legs and no arms, no eyes or anything like that, they use the machinery of the host that they're in. It turns out that what they might be doing to these cats and the rat system is that they cause the rat to shift from being frightened of a cat to being sexually aroused by the cats. It changes what's oh. the part of the brain, which is called the limbic system. So it's a really novel way to, uh, to get around the world. That's remarkable. Uh -huh. Rats they suicide. Also, yeah, exactly. It's called fatal attract, fatal feline attraction. Wow. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that, <laughs> I've, you've completely derailed me. I'm just. Yeah, what did you say to that? <laughs> well, I, what I'm, I'm just suspecting if you get this into a very large mouse and a very subservient cat, what could happen? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> Wow, I'm completely derailed. I apologize. It also, <laughs> it, also, it also occurs in humans, if you want me to talk about that. Well, yes. yeah. yeah. How, how does that work out? So this, this Toxoplasma gondii is a parasite of mammals, and its, its life cycle involves a rat being eaten by a cat. But lots of mammals can, and then the, the cycle continues when the rats um, defecate and, and the, the rats encounter this and it continues in that way. So let's imagine you keep cats in your home and it's defecating all the time, which it, they tend to do. Then humans can pick up this infection. And many, many humans have it between 12% of the population, 13% in the, in, the, in, the, in the US, up to as much as um, 60 or 65% in France, and some people say even more. But huge numbers of the population are infected. And a colleague of mine, Kevin Lafferty, showed that 
the prevalence of this parasite uh, across different societies influence a lot of the societal uh, uh, behaviors, such as the degree of neuroticism. More parasites around increase the neuroticism in humans because what the parasite is doing is getting into our brain just as it would do into a rat brain. It's not transmitting from us to, to cats, but it nonetheless is, is activating its molecular machinery and it's changing how our neurons function. And more particularly, what it's doing is sequestering, so gathering in dopamine because it, it, fun, it lives as a cyst inside the brain. It gathers in all the dopamine and then violently shoots it out rapidly. And what this does is causes impulsive behavior in those people who are infected. Uh, it's very schizophrenic-like. Uh, and in fact, mm -hmm. people who study schizophrenia are, are intensively studying this parasite in order to understand how that could lead to better control strategies. There's a very nice series of studies coming out of the Czech Republic by Yaroslav Fleger showing that uh, if you do have this parasite, you are two and a half times more likely to be in a car crash than if you don't have the parasite uh, because of its effect on impulsive behavior and, and reducing reaction times because of uh, essentially messing around with your brain chemistry. Holy guacamole. So what, I guess, how, how do you, uh, if you have the parasite, can it be gotten rid of? Oh, absolutely not. You're stuck with it. And if you get older, you get more. And, and it's not, I don't think the problem is whether you have it. I think the problem is whether your airline pilot has it. Yeah, maybe. But does this, does this, uh, and it doesn't have anything to do with cat love, right? I mean, like it doesn't have anything to do with like all the Facebook cat pictures, right? <laughs> well, it, 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 it now has a strong association with the stereotypical cat lady for sure. A Discover Magazine blog by Carl Zimmer uh, men mentioned that the fungus creates its own antibiotics. Uh, why, why does this happen? And, and could these antibiotics have applications for people? So the fungi which control, which, which infect insects, they put all their effort into killing the insect. They may or may not manipulate behavior depending on which insect, but everything is in order to get a source of food. And once you kill the insect, everything else in the world will try to take that free lunch away from you. So what they do is invest heavily in antibiotics. And this has been one of the major source of uh, antibiotics in, or not major source, but one of the interesting sources in um, Chinese medicine. So for about 1,500 years, they have used these fungi as a source of therapeutics. And in the last 50 or 70 years in Western medicine, we've discovered that what the Chinese had done traditionally has a lot of Western medicine scientific backing. So we now know that these fungi can produce compounds that have anti-malarial and anti-TB and anti-tumor properties. So they can significantly reduce the size of tumors in vivo. And the consequence of this is this is the most expensive fungus on the planet. Uh, it, it went up to about 90,000 US dollars a kilo. And the reason for this expense is because the one that the Chinese are focusing on uh, grows in the high Tibetan Alps. It kills a, a, a caterpillar which lives in the grasslands there. And over-exploitation has led to uh, a massive price increases. Uh, the fungi we work on are a dime a dozen in tropical and temperate woods all over the world. Just like goji berries, everything comes from there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so does this kind of behavior modification exist in larger animals as well? Um, well, we certainly see it in the, in the rats. Uh, you'll see uh, sea otters off the coast of California when they're manipulated by these toxoplasma parasites taking more risks 
it's not an adaptive manipulation in that case. Um, so I think the question is always brought around to are humans manipulated? And you only have to think of rabies to show a very, very clear example of a parasite controlling mammal behavior, uh, whether it's a raccoon, a bat, or a human, but it increases uh, aggressiveness in, in all of those mammalian hosts. It increases the amount of viral particles in the saliva, causing a frotting at the mouth. Um, and then, of course, the aggression and the frotting at the mouth, uh, coupled with the bite, is the transmission route for this virus. So it's, it's, it's a really a, a wonderful example of behavioral manipulation. In humans, there's another really cool parasite, which is called Draculentius. Um, Draculentius is Latin for meaning plagued by little devils. It's also called the guinea worm. Uh, and this is a really interesting parasite that humans get when they drink water, which has infected water fleas inside it, little copepods. And the parasite gets into our stomach and then after about a year, migrates around the body, reproduces in our body, and then moves down to the lower limbs, so near the ankles. And when it gets there, this large worm creature sticks its head out and starts producing offspring. And these offspring have to be in a body of water. So it causes an intense pain in the lower limbs. And this is and this is why it's called plague by little devils. People go to the body of water, try to wash it, try to soothe it. And of course, that's exactly what the parasite wants because that's where the parasite is reproducing. And Jimmy, and Jimmy Carter is trying to make it go extinct. So we're now down yeah. to a, a couple of uh, countries, two or three countries. And it's great that, that, that people are are eradicating it because it is an incredibly debilitating parasite for humans to get. But uh, one ha one, anybody who likes natural history and parasite manipulation of behavior has to be a little bit sorrowful at the loss of such a beautiful parasite. But probably by in the next two years, it will be eradicated from the planet. Yay, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, doesn't, doesn't uh, sort of this uh, parasitic manipulation of behavior uh, strike a serious blow for philosophical dualism? It depends. Um, I'm not sure to what extent they're really getting on board with the natural history. But for any, I think that's probably why the, the public love it so much, because it does really speak to free will and the extent to which our behavior is our own essential property. You know, we all recognize that when we were five years old and now we're 35 or 45, our whole body has changed over that period and we're pretty much unrecognizable. But we do think our behavior hasn't changed and that's something which is uh, fundamentally ours. And when parasites do change the behavior of ants or rats or, or even raccoons, in the case of rabies, that makes us uneasy because we don't like the idea of something else taking over our body. I mean, you, you think about alcohol and, and all the other things that can change your behavior or limit your mm -hmm. inhibitions or uh, mm -hmm. the way that drugs can take over people's uh, priorities and reprioritize. But all those cases, most people, I think, still like to believe they're in control. And I, I think there's so many ways that our behavior can be influenced and that uh, when you go down to these simple bodies, which, I mean, the, even an ant, while small, is actually pretty complex. Mm -hmm. um, but to just see how these other things can just influence their behavior, I just find endlessly fascinating. So that's all. You sort of touched upon this, but uh, your research has been picked up by several prominent science blogs. What's it like to have your research become a popular topic of discussion in the media? I think it's wonderful. I I, um, I grew up uh, deeply engaged with the BBC and David Attenborough, and I grew up in a, a sort of a very, very working class environment in Dublin, Ireland, where there wasn't much access to nature. And 
what I think we can do through these blogs and this public outreach is give people a window into complex life histories in rainforests. And, you know, only a few of us are really fortunate enough to get there. Um, so people can engage through these blogs and through these websites and YouTube and can see a lot of our research and they can take what they want from it. Um, but hopefully some of it's just a better appreciation of the natural world. Why are you so passionate about this topic? <laughs> so, so I'm passionate both about ants and other social insects and the parasites that break them. So these social insects are um, beautiful systems of collective action where everything works together, like a Henry Ford factory, all working to make one single product, which at the end of it is a car or a new queen. But it's this great synergism that we see. Parasites look at this and say, well, I can exploit this in some way. And so I'm interested in how parasites have evolved to break into what is a very well-functioning factory. And not only do they have to break in, they have to break out. And often that re requires a, a manipulation of the behavior. So on the one hand, I look at a beautiful collective system. And on the other, I look at a, a parasite which is merciless in its desire to reproduce and will break that system in any way that's necessary for it to do so. I've got a question. I think it's a, I'm not sure if it's an urban legend, but it's just something I've heard in the past. I'm sure other uh, listeners would have heard of it too, about some tribe, I don't know where, I don't know their name, uh, but who would use ants, uh, the, the mandibles, as some kind of suture for, for cuts. Uh, so that the have you heard of this before, Blake? Yeah, so there's a number of Amazonian tribes uh, which use these large army ants which okay. have these enormously large sickle-shaped sickle uh, mandibles. And they have these to protect the trails of army ants from uh, predators, mammalian predators. And they're incredibly sharp and pointy and large. And so what the, the Native, Native Indians of, uh, the Native American Indians of um, the South American forests do is they use them for sewing up wounds. Incredible. Yeah, I just wasn't sure if that was an yeah. urban legend or, or not. No, 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 that happens. Wow, that's so neat. It, it, yeah. Okay, <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners about ants, or, or that may, they may not know? Um, they're very good. They're enjoyable. <laughs> Buy a magnifying glass and study them in your kitchen. Um, don't burn them. But don't burn don't them. Burn them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, they're, they're beautifully, beautifully orchestrated societies, um, and. It's really nice when those are, are broken into by parasites, but but certainly ants are, ants are fun to contemplate and think about. Well, it just just kind of a follow up. If if this fungus gets into any of the ants, does do they all behave the same way? I mean, if if, if you ever infected a queen to see what would happen. Well, I ha we haven't done well. We haven't done that, but nature has done it. So occasionally, we find queens in the forest, which are also biting into these leaves. Um, wow! So it seems that the fungus is able to do whatever it wants, um, mm. irrespective of whether it's a worker or or uh, a queen. The reason we don't see queens often is because the whole society functions by having this female reproduce and if she's threatened or damaged or killed the whole thing breaks down the workers can't just step up and reproduce themselves and so they can't just produce a new queen at the drop of a hat so what happens is that they protect her by keeping her at the center of a very large society and they prevent who accesses her and they prevent germs and disease getting into her and that is fundamentally different than what we do in our societies what we do is let everybody mix together so we send all our kids to the same daycare where they 
spew and snot over each other all day long <laughs> and then they all come back to their respective homes and that's how the disease spreads ridiculously quickly um, you know SARS from Hong Kong to Toronto and then globally in a matter of days so the ant societies are all constructed on the framework that they have to reduce disease spread inside their borders um, and, and uh, our societies are, are failing miserably to do that so what happens to the colony if the, the queen's infected? The whole thing stops. Um, okay. the, 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 the chemical control that we talked about where the worker reproduction is stopped by the queen, the signal from the queen eggs is no longer there. The workers think, well, I'll give it a go. And they can only, they can only lay male eggs. They're not able to lay female eggs. Um, but the, they start reproducing and the whole thing just falls apart. Can't bees create a new queen? They do, and, and so do ant societies. All these societies create new queens, but they do it on a on a on a particular timeline, and they can't just create them um, because once the queen is dead, the society will start breaking down in days because the chemical signal is not there. It will take uh, a lot, much longer period of time to produce a new queen, um, as long as thirty or forty days. So they can't just do it immediately. So the, the society just doesn't function. It needs that regulator. It's, wow! It's like, it's like the pacemaker of the heart stopping. Uh, something will happen in the next few seconds, but the, the heart will then stop. That must be kind of sad to watch a colony just fall apart. And no one's ever watched it. The only person who's ever described, who's, who's imagined it is, uh, better than anybody has been Ed Wilson in, in, uh, in his novel, but then also in the New Yorker magazine where he talked about this trailhead of the queen dying and how the colony just kind of dwindles that, over days. That's E.O. Wilson? Is that yeah, that's okay. e. yeah, E.O. Wilson. Uh, we, we always like to ask our guests uh, this last question, and um, we, we like to find out the, the favorite monster of uh, each of our guests. So, David, what's your favorite monster? Um, so, I'm obviously partial to zombies. Um, <laughs> I, 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 and I think it's, it's, it's the one in Danny Boyle's 28 Days Later. I, I really like that. that. That's really impressive. I, I, li I like what they did with that. Um, so, so, zombies, I have to say, would, would be my, my, my personal favorite. Yeah, that's a good movie. I, 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 don't, I, I guess uh, you, it seems like uh, uh, I realize it was supposed to be developed in a lab, but anything that infected that quickly and killed the host would be problematic in, a, in the real world right um hopefully <laughs> yeah so um let me think um we certainly have parasites which get into humans and kill them the hemorrhagic ebola viruses are, are, are quite mm. um the case uh vi the, the then the, the brain manipulating ones are also viruses so that the rabies uh, they take days to weeks to progress but nonetheless they once they do progress to the symptom stage when you feel that tingling at the location where you had the bite then you've just got two or three days to live and the changes are rapid so if you can com combine those two together uh you might have something really interesting an airborne <laughs> hemorrhagic fever with something that changes your, your your behavior that's also the premise of uh of uh, the movie wreck um okay i forget what the american version was called um but basically it's, i think it was a Brazilian, but it's a uh, it's like a, a, a an ex especially virulent version of uh, rabies, and it okay. causes, causes the people to turn into kind of crazy zombies. Yeah, um, but yeah, it's uh, it's really frightening, especially when there's a, a sort of a real world basis for it. Mm. And uh, but that was so, a fun movie. Yeah. I like how these these movies are becoming more sophisticated. I'm I'm the one of the I'm one of the scientific consultants on this uh, Brad Pitt World War Z movie, and I'm also talking with um, oh what's his name Matt Reeves who's writing a new script for behavioral manipulating parasites. And so in the context of talk, and I'm also. Um, 
consulting for Sony who are bringing out a new game um, which features Ophio Cordyceps Unilateralis. It's the um, um, it's called the the Last of Us uh, is a new game which is coming out, and so I really enjoy how the entertainment industry is becoming ever more subtle in its integration of biological details. Um, they I, obviously I can't talk about what what I talk about with them, but it's just nice how audiences are becoming more sophisticated and it's merging things that they would appreciate from the natural world with, of course, um, fantastical creations of Hollywood. Um, but it's a, it's a nice uh, border zone between the two. It is, and it's great that you're getting to have some influence in mm. it. That's nice. I, I love it when when they get real science consultants. Yeah. I realize it's kind of hard to push that into the screen. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sure. <laughs> but it is well, I, well, I think we can push things like virulence. So we've, now what we've been speaking about today has been virulence. How, how nasty can a parasite be? How quickly can it kill you? Or what does it do? Does it shut off your reproduction, shut down your muscles, or does it um, – uh, change your behavior. All of this is virulence. And this is something which is under under the control of natural selection. And it's a primary feature. And I think it's nice when we can bring those into into the mainstream. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. No problem. It's a pleasure. Monster Talk. Thank you for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith. And today you heard Karen Stolzno and me interviewed Dr. David Hughes about zombie ants. Some great photos of these hapless insects are available in the show notes at monstertalk.org. As an interesting side note, nearly every photo you'll see of zombie ants biting into a leaf are printed upside down with the ant on top. In reality, the ant is always under the leaf, its body hanging from beneath. Monster Talk is produced with the help of Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society. The views expressed on this show are those of the hosts and the guests and may not reflect the opinion of the Skeptic Society or Skeptic Magazine. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. Zombies. Yes. They are my servants. Did you think we could do it alone?